0: Welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. We will bring a bit of reflective Patreon influence into today's episode, and in so doing, talk about the different strategies I have implemented over the years for bringing minimalism into my book reading, and therefore into my book buying as well. Helpful to moving forward will be to provide a definition of minimalism as there are so many different interpretations and instantiations of the minimalist lifestyle aside from the pop culture minimalist aesthetic that comes up on YouTube and Architectural Digest. So what is minimalism? To me, minimalism is akin to enoughism. It is the state of confidence I experience in knowing that I have stepped off of the hedonic treadmill, that I can move my entire life in a day's notice, and that I have curated, that is, manifested my intentions for the materialistic avenues of my life. I easily fall into habits of materialism and acquisition. Minimalism is what keeps me grounded, what keeps me tethered to the moment, to other people, and not to those old habits, not to material items and stuff. The Minimalists, whose blog, Twitter, and podcast I've linked at relevanceofliterature.com notes under the show notes for this episode, provide an apt and beautiful definition on Twitter. Quote, minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things, which aren't actually things at all, unquote. Minimalism is what taught me to put my phone down and instead to pick up a book. Books are important to me insofar as the lessons I learn from books are important to me. I love exposing myself to new modes of thought, new cultures and values, and new means of living. Therefore, when I first became a minimalist in 2016, outside of people, reading was the first quote-unquote thing I prioritized old habits die hard, and to prevent myself from slipping back into limitless book acquisition, over the years I have test-run quite a few book buying strategies that I hoped would allow me to impose boundaries on my book buying and allow me to stay consistent with my values of owning and acquiring less. I've read 52 books a year for the past six years, minimum, that is, so an unwieldy number of books pass through my hands and my mind as it is without the added craziness of -of out-of-control book acquisition. My goal for this episode is to review the minimalist book-buying strategies that I have implemented over the years, analyze them, and end up with amalgamation of boundaries that I can stand by moving forward as I head closer and closer to moving overseas in the next year. One important item to note here is that these strategies apply to physical books only, This episode is not sponsored by any means by Audible, but I do buy 12 Audible credits every year and I spend the year reading roughly one audiobook per month out of those. Nowadays, I also exclusively use my Kindle when I travel and not during the everyday (laughs) practical side of reading. I just prefer book books so much, even though I do love using my Kindle, I find it most practical for when I travel. Let's talk strategies. The first strategy is very self-explanatory. It's the one book per month strategy. I tend to read between four and eight books per month depending on the month. So in August 2020, for example, I read eight books. In September of 2020, however, I only read three books. So it just depends on the month, the season of life that I'm in. And also, if I read a lot of books one month, it's usually either a reaction to or a preparation for a month where I'm not going to get a lot of reading done. So it really all balances out in the end with regard to my actual pace with reading. I do end up reading about between 52 and 60 books a year. Uh, I tend to pace an average about 1.1 books per week, uh, and that gets, again, slower or faster depending on which time I'm in. There are certain years, 2020 for example, where I just don't get as much reading done as I maybe anticipate and things happen, (laughs) 2020 happens. Um, but there are also re- uh, years, for example, like 2018, where I read an absurd amount of books. I think I read like 72 to 75 books, so it just, again, depends on the year. I have slow and fast years. Uh, part of that is also what, how many books I'm reading concurrently and how overwhelmed I get with that. So I'm better at juggling reading more books concurrently in different times, so all that's to say is with regard to book acquisition. The one book per month actually turns out to be a pretty good metric for my book buying, especially since I have many, many books in my collection, so-called, that I've not read yet. So I have about a shelf full of books that I have not read. This is a fact that I have felt differently about at different times in my life, uh, or in, in this period of my life where I've been reading more and more, I'm now more at peace of it than I was when I first became a minimalist. Because when I first became a minimalist, I was so obsessed with, I was in that moment of intensity when you first start something, this new lifestyle change that you really want to follow and implement. And I was so taken by this necessity versus frivolity idea in our society that we just endlessly consume. And I was wanting at that point in my life to consume, yes, but consume differently and also start moving towards production and creativity and, to a lesser extent, productivity. And so with this whole amalgamation of ideas in tow with minimalism, I felt at first that having a shelf of books that I have not read was running contrary to that idea. And so I set out at that time, this is in 2016, to do a big clean out of that shelf. And I did do a big clean out. um, And I made an important discovery, which is that Before I converted to minimalism, so to speak, I would buy a lot of books not for my current self to read, but for my ideal future self to read. And that was a big eye opener for me in terms of how I curated intentions for buying books moving forward. And now I would say I still do that. I think everyone who reads and who buys books does that to an extent, right? You buy a book that you really do, in the moment, intend, quote-unquote, to read, but it's really not for your current self right now to get home and start reading, it's for yourself a couple months from now when you have more time, the self who enjoys that type of literature, for example, or the self that wants to broaden their literary avenues in such-and-such such way, wants to get to know this author a little bit better you know, and that might or might not parallel your actual intentions. So while I still do this to a certain extent, I definitely don't do this in a problematic way anymore in that if I buy a book, for example, I bought the book Whereabouts by Jim Lahiri, the book we reviewed last week uh, over the summer, as soon as it came out really uh, in English And I thought, you know, I've never read a Lahiri book. I've heard lots about her writing, and I'm going to give this a shot, but not right now. (laughs) And so I waited a month and a half before I started reading it. Um, And really, this was a book that I challenged myself to start reading. And it wasn't a book that I was. 100% comfortable with starting to read because I didn't feel like I was the type of reader that really would take to this book. But I'm so glad that I did challenge myself to read it. So that's just one example. I didn't necessarily buy the book for my current, at the time, my current self, but I bought it with the intention to challenge myself in a certain way. And in that way, I was able to overcome this problem of buying books for my, or sort of aspirational books, or books for my aspirational self in the future. So yes, I do have a shelf of unread books. I honestly could not even quantify uh, appropriately the number of books on that shelf that I haven't read, and the reason why is it's not in good order at the moment. Um, I don't live where my books are uh, for most of the year, so that's another kind of inconsolable problem with my minimalism at this point, and I've made peace with it by setting a date. I will move my books from that location to my permanent residence within the next three years. That's one important thing that I think minimalism has given me, is the ability to conceptualize boundaries for my belongings and to really set great, again, this thing of intentionality keeps coming up, but really set big intentions for what I'm going to do with my belongings, namely my books, really, which is a lot of the material items that I own in this world at this point. So in terms of those books, um, I would wager, if I had to take a guess, about 30 books that I haven't read. Um, that I own. So I go through that pile of books and I end up gifting a lot of them after the end of every year. Most of those books, probably two-thirds, at least half, are contemporary fiction novels that have either gotten sent to me over the year or that I have purchased with the intention of reading that month as it comes out and reviewing it on the podcast. So I'm not blaming those two avenues, the podcast or people who send me books to review, um, but those are the main sources of books that I have in my collection that I haven't read yet. And the reason why I haven't read them is if a certain amount of time passes, right, a couple months, say, that book becomes less and less urgent for me to read because it's no longer, you know, hot off the presses, so to speak. So, and I end up turning to uh, series like Horrifying Classics or turning to books in German, uh, books that I have in my collection. Um, for example, historical reads, I do reread books. So any sort of um, book that is more front of mind uh, will come to take those books place and therefore I will leave them unread. So the one book per month strategy here was really helpful for me, and I did this strategy actually for a little over two years in 2016 and 2017. It was helpful for me as I was starting to pare down my to-be-read shelf, and it was hard uh, in a certain sense because I do love contemporary fiction so much and contemporary literature so much in general, but it was also a time when I was reading mostly classics, and I really wanted to. My, my mission with reading, so to speak, at that point was I really wanted to get myself to a point where I felt I was starting to become well read. And in order to do that, I went back and I read especially American classics for the first year, and the second year, I started reading international classics. Um, so the first year, I read a lot of, you know, Catch-22, Catcher in the Rye, The Jungle, a lot of those kinds of books. I read so much Kurt Vonnegut that year <laughs> and then the second year I started reading Camus and Dostoevsky and, and uh, Tolstoy and a bunch of other international writers who I also felt, um, you know, Haruki Murakami and Kazuo Ishiguro, all of those kinds of writers um, who I felt would broaden my horizons um, in a, in a different regard than the first year. So it wasn't really an issue for me because I had access to those types of books via libraries, via my parents' small shelf of books, you know? So it was much easier for me to acquire books without having to buy them. So the pros of that strategy was that the consumption was minimal, the cost was minimal, and... I really had to, I was forced to make the most out of my one book per month, which I found to be a really enjoyable constraint it forced me to really think about what book I was going to purchase that month. I was so excited every month when I finally purchased that book, I would like wait until the last minute and buy my book finally after the whole month. So that was actually an enjoyable constraint and an enjoyable challenge for me. And again, I put a lot of time into like curating and researching the one book, whereas... I have had points in my literary existence since and before then when I'm, you know, I hear about a book and I think, "Mm, that's a good author, I'll just buy that book. And I really don't know a lot about it. I'm only mildly excited about it, right? And it has no bearing really on how enjoyable I find the book to be or how good the book is. It's just about that intention and really being able to spend time with what I'm about to acquire and really having good reasoning behind that. I find that to be a valuable skill in a lot of respects. The cons are that uh, this challenge started to become untenable when more than 50% of my reading became contemporary, uh, especially since I was reading at that time, and even into now, books that are literally I read the book as soon as it comes out. I usually pre-order books the month before, and then read them as soon as they get delivered to me. So those it becomes untenable again when 50 plus percent of my reading is contemporary literature, also with multiple languages uh, accessible to me now. It's it's harder and harder for me to just choose one book because. My uh, collection, quote-unquote, of books is much smaller in German because I don't have as much access to German books, especially not to buy. Um, So it just became a lot harder to narrow down the one book when really I could have done something like two books, one in German and one in English per month, and that would have been more accessible and helpful to me as I was getting better and better at German, um, and now that I'm fluent and reading a ton more German literature than I ever have, that would have been a much more helpful constraint for me because it just got frustrating at a certain point, (laughs) and I was like, I have one book, and I need it to be a German book, really, because I'm trying to become fluent in this language, but I also have these other not pressures, but sort of desires towards still reading English books at a rapid pace. So they were, and I, and I read books concurrently as well, right? So that, uh, I started to run into barriers pretty quickly as my reading changed. And also I found that as I continued the podcast, you know, we're in Episode, what, 203 at this point? Uh, Yeah, 203. Um, I found that the balance between the podcast and my personal reading just got to be too difficult with the one book per month rule, right? In horrifying classics, December Dickens, we used to do a series in February called The Love of February. Um, And then even with something like summer YA nowadays, uh, that would be impossible for me to do, um, with only buying one book, uh, unless I had consistent access to a library, which I often do not because of my lifestyle at this point. So all of the, all of that to say is those were the challenges that I didn't have, uh, and that's why I was able to sustain this one-book-per-month rule, this one-book-per-month-buying rule, for so long, for over two years. Um, But as my reading needs changed, so did my need for boundaries. The second strategy that I implemented is completely the opposite of the one-book um, per month, or not completely the opposite, but very much in the other direction. This rule comes from Ramit Sethi, who is an author in the finance literature genre. I am really interested in his work, and I find that his perspective is really fresh, and it's really nuanced. Um, I don't agree with everything he says, especially about finance, but I found his book buying strategy to be so interesting that I did test run it for a while, probably six to eight months. His strategy, uh, and this is from a Twitter post, says, quote, just buy the book. Uh, Even one idea is worth it, unquote. And that Twitter post is also linked in the show notes. Essentially, the rule is, if you are even thinking about buying a book, don't waste the five seconds or however long it takes you to think about it, just buy it. So he literally will just buy any book he comes across that he feels would be valuable to him at some point. And I thought this is so fascinating to me as a strategy, just because not only is it, it cuts down on the time, right? Deciding, I would say, you know, the one book per month maximum intentions. We're really forced to think and research your books that you're going to buy, you're forced to look at previews of books, right? And start reading them in the store a little bit. But this one is a little more, I don't want to say impulse driven, because I do feel that I already have a very high threshold for books that I even think about buying. So for example, a lot of people tend to recommend books to me. Very unsurprising, I have a podcast about books, I read a lot, and so one way that people often try to relate to me is they say, oh, I read this great book recently, I think you should read it too. Um, And I love when people do that because it's a way for them to try to connect one of their interests to my interests. However, I often do not listen to book recommendations, and the reason why is I have very different needs as a reader (laughs) than most other people, especially since I have become more and more picky about the books that I read. Um, And not picky in the sense that I, like, turn down every book I read, but picky in the sense that I know what I like and I know what I'm looking for. So even if it's a book that I'm not sure I'll like, per se, I I pretty much like anything. I look for books that are going to challenge me in some way. I look for books that are going to capture a specific mood that I'm wanting to feel or wanting to explore more. So even with whereabouts as a continuing example here, it's... A book that I found I thought would be challenging and found to be challenging because of the Hemingway-like prose. That's a style of prose that I have a really hard time not only reading, but writing in. It's It bogs me down, it takes me a long time to understand it and to distill it into images. I personally follow flowery, kind of dostoevsky like writing, the best Tolstoy-esque writing, Um, those books are actually easier in some senses for me to get through, a la Dickens, for example, too, than a book like Whereabouts, than a book like For Whom the Bell Tolls. So I did pick, you know, Whereabouts somewhat serendipitously at the store when I saw it, but I also kind of read the first few pages and thought this would be a really great book to for my aspirational self, again, to read and to really be challenged with. So I do think that when this rule, when I implemented this rule for myself, just buy any book that you're thinking about, I enjoyed it, the prose, I enjoyed it because I didn't feel guilty about choosing to buy a book. And I often do feel guilty when I buy a book because the cost of books is so high and and depending on where I buy it, if I buy it on Amazon, I feel bad. If I, you know, buy it from one bookstore or over another, I feel bad. Um, if I buy a book and I don't read it for a long time, I feel bad. So there's a lot of, like, emotional cost that comes to buying books for me, and I felt like the emotional cost of this strategy was interestingly, lower in the sense that I didn't have to debate and go back and forth and feel so much guilt about, oh, do I buy the book? Do I not? Where am I going to buy it? I was buying a lot of books, but it wasn't enough books for me to feel uncomfortable with the number I was buying. And the books really didn't pile up as much as I thought they would. I really stuck with that 30 uh, number of to be read books, which I found to be really fascinating in some senses of how was it all of a sudden that I was completely unrestricted for buying books and yet I was not buying a substantially higher number of books. That was, it still fascinates me. Um, and the strategy also fit well with the podcast. So I didn't honestly feel like the lack of constraints really messed with the book buying that much. even, And I think part of that is because I have so many constraints already in what I'm looking for when I'm reading. I wasn't being intentional about the actual purchasing part, but I was being intentional about the selection part. The cons... Of this, of course, is that my book budget every month was, I think, quadrupled. I probably bought about four books a month, something like that, and read six during the time, six a month during the time that I did this for the six to eight months. Um, it was more wasteful as well in the sense that I was buying more contemporary literature, which as I mentioned, sometimes I don't get to all of those books, and then I just don't read them and then they get quote-unquote too old and then I feel bad and I gift them. Uh, Also the impulse buying is higher, I, like everyone, it can be subject to impulse purchases and I inhabit, (laughs) I go to bookstores quite a bit, I end up there, I don't really seek out bookstores as much as I just end up in bookstores that I'm interested in seeing. So the impulse buying was also higher for me, which was a problem. And I think my biggest, talking again about guilt, was my biggest issue with this was that I bought books on Amazon a ton more. I didn't know at first that Amazon was primarily a bookseller at first. Like it started out as an online bookstore. And so the selection on Amazon is quite impressive, especially for German literature, which is what I was primarily using it for, and I still do primarily use Amazon for German literature. And I felt I felt bad about it in particular because if I didn't have this constraint, then why didn't I just go to a local bookstore to buy the books? You know, why not just take that extra step? And we can talk about inhibiting factors, we can talk about those boundaries again. Um, but that was one thing that I struggled with when I was adopting this particular reading strategy is that the barriers were so low that I started to consume more and more online, which is something that isn't in line with my values because of the waste, because of things like packaging, because it's taking away business from booksellers that I really admire and people I really admire. So there are a lot of systemic issues with my own habits that were developing as a part of this particular book strategy. The third book buying strategy that I've tried is a book buying hold, aka a no spend on books, and this is this is truly the opposite of the Ramit Sethi method in that it is what it looks like. <laughs> Essentially, I have had periods in my life where I've decided I am not going to buy any books and I've done this in the context of broader no spends or literally targeting just books. I'm not going to buy any books for a period. The longest I've done this at a time was three months but I've done this several times for one month as well so I've had a couple trials at it over the years. The pros are that this is a great reset and it really allows me to go back to my to be read shelf and analyze what I'm buying, why I'm buying it, who I'm buying it for, I- aka or ie which self I'm buying it for. And I really can psychoanalyze in the sense that I can dig into what. I buy aspirationally and what I actually like to read at that point. And those are the time periods which it's really helpful for me to reevaluate what I'm looking for in my reading, and I can go back to purchasing books eventually with just really clear goals and intentions in mind. But this is not a strategy for all the time, right? If I stopped buying books completely Again, I don't have consistent access to libraries in in the same way that I used to. That would be problematic because I wouldn't be able to read (laughs) as much, uh, which, you know, would be very unenjoyable for me. That would be um, depriving myself in a lot of senses. Um, I think other pros about this particular book buying strategy I have to get creative when I do these uh, for what I review on the podcast. I often will re-read books during these periods and review them on the podcast, and that's always helpful for me because most of the books that we do review on the podcast are books that I've read for the first time, and so I'm bringing a new perspective to them, and that's a a lot because, majority because, I read mostly newer books, right? So I don't have time if I'm going to review the book the week after it comes out to read it multiple times. Well, I guess, I suppose I could if I really wanted to, but most of the time it just works out to read it and then review it immediately after. So the con- the creative constraints when I do these challenges are really notable for me and they give me a lot of rest. Again, it's a nice pause from what I think about when I plan the podcast normally. It's also cost-effective, obviously, waste-effective. I'm not going to feel that I should get rid of a lot of books unless I really feel they're not adding value uh, because I will tend to read books exclusively from my current collection, including my To Be Read pile. And I really am forced, again, the creative constraints are in place. I have to go through the books that I already have when I'm implementing this strategy. The cons for this, somewhat obviously as well, it's not sustainable for a reader like myself, and there are no contemporary reads. Intentionalist book buying is the last strategy we will talk about today. And this is Quite simply, I must wait for 30 days before buying a book. The pros here are that it correlates super well with the values that I have about book consumption, about minimalism, and acquisition in general. There is high emotional cost in the sense that I really have to go through and again choose and be really intentional from, you know, the list of 20 books. Per month or per two months that I see that I'm considering buying, I must really put in the time and effort and energy to choose and to sort of lose out and to intentionally lose out on the opportunity to read certain books, a majority of books in that pile. But the other costs become lower, right? I'm not consuming as much. I'm also not getting rid of as much. I'm forced to have the creative constraints of sometimes going back into my to-be-read pile. The cons are that the pre-orders that I uh, often partake in are only possible if I hear about a book super early, which does not often happen. I often hear about a book... Uh, a little less than a month, like two or three weeks before it comes out, and so that becomes harder, especially if it's a signed edition that I want to get my hands on. Midnight Sun is a perfect example. I heard about Midnight Sun the day that it released, and I got the signed edition also the day that it released, um, and that book was a no-brainer for me to buy twice, and the reason why is, uh, Twilight nostalgia, um, there are certain books, books by David Sedaris, for example, books by Haruki Murakami, that I will buy no matter what, and um, that is just an exception that I make. And it's not really an exception, an exception because it is very intentional, right? It's a constraint or a lack of a constraint that I impose on myself. I say. Look, if it's a new David Sedaris book, I'm going to get the signed edition. That's just how it is, <laughs> you know. So, in that sense, this intentionalist books buying strategy, in you know, if I'm looking at the letter of the law here, doesn't work with these pre-orders. These books that I know if they are going to come out, if there's certain authors who publish a book, um, I have a sort of personal <laughs> rule that I will always buy them. Um, it doesn't fit here. Also, you know, I'm not going to get to read books as soon as they come out, which increases the friction for me reading contemporary works. So that's also hard for me because I, again, get a lot of contemporary books and I prefer to read them the week that they come out. So it's a difficult scenario in that sense. Let's look at some commonalities in the pros and cons of these strategies. So here are some things that I noticed from my evaluation of all these strategies, how I felt about them, the pros and cons that I found in them. The first is that I really value a strategy that allows some measure of spontaneity in my book buying and not spontaneity with regard to impulse. That's a different thing. Um, Impulse is when there's no barriers and you buy something without thinking about it um, enough, I think, to be intentional. Spontaneity is when there's intentionality, but there's a quick decision-making time. So, for example, what I was just talking about with regards to new Murakami books, new Sederis books, I will I have decided preemptively, whenever a new book from one of those authors, Malcolm Gladwell is another great example, and Patchett is another great example, whenever a new book comes out from one of those authors, I have pre-committed to buying it and in a signed edition if it's available. So um, the spontaneity of if I hear about it the week before, which again, I often do, and being able to buy that within my book Uh, book buying constraints, that's valuable to me. The second thing is I need some resistance, but not so much that I'm constantly frustrated. I liked the resistance that I had in the more restrictive book buying strategies, the one book per month strategy, the intentionalism strategy, and as well the no buy strategy. I really liked those because they helped me reset. They helped me be just super curated and super intentional not about, not only about what I'm reading, but also about what I'm reviewing on the show. But again, it can't be too restrictive that I'm constantly like frustrated that I can't buy this particular book to review on the show or that, you know, I'm, restrained in one area whether it's my personal reading or with the podcast reading which gets me to the third line item here this strategy has to accommodate both my personal reading and my podcast reading and those are they're distinct but they're also the same right i count the podcast books in my personal book goal why wouldn't i um for the year and so For podcast reading, for example, I often have months where I will need to buy uh, five to eight books or find five to eight books um, to read for Horrifying Classics, for December Dickens, Um, if I ever do any sort of review, if I would ever do any thematic months, which I often used to do a lot more often than I do now, um, those necessarily will be me literally, you know, two months before buying eight books and uh, reading them over the course of the next month and then preparing the episodes the month before. So that, you know, has to also be congruent with my personal reading that I'm doing during that time. I may put off my personal reading for the month that I'm reading Horrifying Classics, for example, but I will soon also start buying personal books again, so that mediation or balance between the two is also important for me in this this book buying strategy. Number four is that something I haven't talked about actually during this episode, which is that uh, I do need it to also accommodate the seasonality of books, so... I have noticed, especially in the books that I tend to gravitate towards, the new releases that I care the most about come out in April and in August. (laughs) Those are the two big months. I will often buy five new releases in April and five in August. Um, Malcolm Gladwell and Haruki Murakami both published books in April of this year and in April of 2019. Uh, David Sedaris often publishes new releases in August. This new one, A Carnival of Snackery, came out in October, however, so it, yeah, just depends, but usually late spring and fall are the best or, like, most robust book-buying periods for me, so it needs to also accommodate for that flux within these seasons. Number five is... The strategy also needs to give me a chance to read from my to-be-read shelf. This is self-explanatory. It's important for me to constantly be evaluating whether or not something is really adding value, whether or not I'm making use of the things that I own and the things that I have um, made a commitment to in that sense, right? If I buy a book, I'm making a future commitment to that book, and it's important for me psychologically to... To honor as much of that as I can in my reading. And finally, it needs to balance the emotional cost with the material cost. So that's essentially summarizing a lot of what I said during this episode, which is it needs to balance the material, the place that it's taking up, right, The time during the time that I'm reading it, and I only keep books that I am going to read again in the next three years, so uh, these that really limits my options because I, of course, can't read, you know, 500 books uh, all within the next three years, so I, I'm very picky about which books I keep after I read them, um, and the emotional cost of Going through and deciding that I'm going to read this book over another book, right? That whenever you start reading a book, it's saying no to a thousand other books. And the emotional cost can get you sometimes. (laughs) Even if you read 70 books, you're really only stepping, you know, an inch deep into the well that is literature. And so that emotional cost is pretty high with each book that I read and with each book indeed that I buy. So I need to balance that with this strategy so finally the strategy that i came up with that accommodates hopefully all of those six line items is a blend of the intentionalist book buying and the one book per month which i'm changing to two books per month and one from the tbr the to be read shelf so For the next three months, I will be piloting this strategy. I'm going to adhere to it uh, the best that I can. uh, Or, Really, I'm going to adhere to it and communicate my frustrations to you after the three months, if I have any. And the strategy is as follows. I'm going to stick to buying two books per month maximum as a rule. The only exception to that is if it's for the podcast and I plan for 30 days in advance to buy it. So for the podcast, if I'm going to read, say, a new release the week after it comes out, then I'm going to need to find out about it 30 days before in order to plan to buy that for the podcast. So I could buy a third book if I've already gotten my two books, for example, one in German, one in English for the month. I can buy a third book if I know that I'm going to read that book 30 days in advance for the podcast exclusively. And I also need to read one book from my to-be-read shelf per month. So that's my constraint of creativity in the sense that I need to be reading the books and cycling through those that I already have at least one per month. I usually get to two to three from the from the to be Red shelf anyway per month, but I wanted to put this in here just again to cater to that specific line item. As I noted, I will check in with you all in March about how this strategy went for me, whether it was a sustainable strategy or not and why, and to share the tally of the books which I bought, read, kept, and donated or gifted. I hope all of you who celebrated Thanksgiving this past week in the States had a wonderful holiday and I look forward to kicking off December Dickens 2021 on Monday, December 6th.